We're going to be looking at John chapter 12, uh, verses 1 through 11 this morning. And it's a remarkable narrative. It's a story of Jesus has come back from Ephraim, as we looked at um, in John chapter 11, uh, near the wilderness in John eleven fifty four. Jesus goes away with his disciples for a period of time, and then uh, he comes back. And as he's coming back, um, Simon, who once was a leper, opens his home to Jesus and hosts a dinner for him. Just by note, I mentioned Simon the leper. You say, I'm looking. I, I don't see him in here. Uh, one of the things that the notes do for you is harmonize the gospel accounts because not everything is written in John. And we know that to be true. He's already told us that. He said, out of all the things Jesus done, I've selected these so that you might believe, right? Then he goes on, if I included everything, he says, all the books in the world couldn't contain them. And so John leaves out facts in a sense, but we can harmonize the rest of the Gospels. And we know that Simon the leper was the person that hosted this dinner. And so when Jesus comes back, there's this uh, heart um, of worship towards him. You say, well, that's convenient. Ben just played a song like that. Well, just to kind of let you in the, the back story, I gave him a call on Tuesday and said, oh, Ben, could you play this song, <laughs> The Heart of Worship? And he said, oh, he said, yeah, I've been thinking about that song for a while. And what we have is a, is a remarkable picture of Jesus being worshipped by his closest friends, one of them being Lazarus. And in the midst of that worship, Mary comes and does something that we can read of in our Jesus reports on it in, in um, Matthew 26. He says, Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, Jesus reflecting on what we're going to learn about, says, whenever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what Mary has done will also be told in memory of her. And so this is a, a dinner hosted by someone that used to be a leper. And we can pick up the narrative in John chapter 12, verse 1. Six days before the Passover, the Passover, if you remember, you know, is from Exodus, you know, the death angel Passovers, and what does the Lord tell the people to do along the doorpost and lintel, you know, the door frames of their house? Take the blood of uh, all right, six days before they remember that event. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus, 
was whom Jesus had raised from the dead. And so Lazarus was, was a, he was a celebrity. And wherever Lazarus was, the people flocked to it. And Simon the leper invites Lazarus to come and we see a picture in the narrative of how they related to Jesus. It was relational. It was informal. It was like having a real meal, sit down, where friends gathered together to remember and talk. And I can, you could think, speculate what Lazarus said to Jesus. Man, it was really wild. I was once dead. <laughs> and then they were taking the grave clothes off me. Jesus, you are my Lord. We come to verse 2. So they gave a dinner for him there. And we see all the characters in their place. Worshiping the Lord in all their kind of unique personalities. What do you think Martha was doing? She was hurrying about, busy, you know, making this and making that. It's a little of my personality. If, if you're ever over the house for dinner, we, you know, I'm the guy in the, the kitchen saying, oh, just sit down and we'll make this and that. And, and I, find, I find joy in that. Nancy finds joy in, you know, when's dinner going to be ready, dear? <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're working so much. I love you so much. <laughs> and so we all have our unique personalities. And we see them in the midst of that in the dinner party. And then we have Mary. We know much about her. And we're going to find out a whole lot more. Verse 3. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard, imported from India, about a pound. The treasurer is going to tell us a little later that it's worth 300 denarii. It's worth a year's wages. If you do a little research, you find that the Bible commentators will tell you, sometimes you ask, how does Conway know this? I open a book and I read it. But the Bible commentators will tell us that, that this year's wages, this alabaster jar with the nard in it, that was, that was security for Mary's present, her present situation, but it was also the security for her future. This was the money that she would use to get married. This was not only her, her, her present sense of well-being, but it was her, it was her ticket to the future. Uh, some, some of you have things like that. They're called what? Yeah, there you go. 401Ks, if you work for a nonprofit, it's a 403 there you go. It's a present. Oh, everything's okay. 
and it's the future that'll be okay in the future. And Mary, Mary has this in her, in her hands. Mary has this in her possession. And she looks at Jesus. And out of all her love, out of all her affection, out of all her gratefulness, she takes her present security and her future hope and she worships Jesus with that. Come back to the text with me. It says, Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and, and then she, what? She takes down her hair. We know that because the hair was up and it was covered in modesty. And she lets her hair down. A unmistakable demonstration of humility, vulnerability, complete adoration. Let's her hair down. Circles around to the, their guys are sitting this way and eating. Circles around to the back to Jesus' feet and say what? Look at the text. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was unmistakably filled with the fragrance of that nard. And she worshiped her Savior with all that she had, both presently and a hope for the future. When we look at the New Testament as the women, over and over again, we find the ones that in the social structure of the day were put to the side. It is, it is those that come and worship Jesus without reservation, without reserve, because he loved them and valued them more than the culture of the day. And more than that, forgave all their sins. There's other women that we could go to, Mary Magdalene, prostitute. Worship Jesus with all of our heart because Jesus accepted and loved and forgave. The text is a contrast also because in the middle of that time of worship, there was someone else there who had a different view of things, a different assessment. Take a look at the text with me. It says in verse 4, But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he was... But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, he had a different assessment. Why? To go back to last week's teaching, to unpackage it, it gives us an insight here. He's a thief. 
but he was part of the cohort that, well, they didn't want to lose their position and title and power. They wanted Jesus to be the great messianic deliverer. And the thought of losing position, power, and title, no, that's not going to happen. Judas Iscariot was one of those. He was also one of the, the nationalistic people that they weren't interested in the kingdom of God. They were interested in the state of Israel. And because of that, the pride in their heart prevented them from being a Mary. Prevented them from giving all that they had and all that they hoped in worshiping the one that would forgive and be the Lamb of God and forgive sins. Back to the text. Judas Iscariot, he's, he said, why wasn't this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? And the text John tells us, he, he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. And I love Jesus. Jesus says, get off of her case. Leave her alone. So that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you will always have with you. But you do not always have me. And then verses 9, 10, and 11 bring it all together. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came out not only on account of him, but they also, they also wanted to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priest made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. And we know in, in short to order, those that had come to believe would say what? Oh, we, we want Barabbas. Crucify him. When we look at a narrative like this, when I look at the literature that's out there, a lot of times the commentators, and you read them too, you have one of my favorite places to go is Blue Letter Bible. I mean, you could go Blue Letter Bible and you'll have everything Pastor Chuck taught for almost his entire life. You'll have David Guzik, which is a great commentator, great Bible teacher. But if you look at a lot of these guys, the focus becomes, you know, on the, say, preaching focus becomes on this guy Judas. How evil, wicked. And then he's used as a straw man, in a sense, <laughs> to plummet the... Uh, to plummet the peeps. This is what it looks like when you get selfish. This is, this is the problem in the church today. Well, it doesn't really help me much. And I don't think it helps train you to think that way, even though Judas Iscariot is the scoundrel he is, right? But what would help? Let me personalize it. What's the transformational moment for me, when I read this text, what is the point of spiritual growth? I'm not a woman. I, I don't have a jar of nard. I mean, not in the Middle Ages. I'm not the Middle Ages. I'm not in the Middle East. I'm not in Palestine. I mean, what is the moment of transformation when I read this? I'm not Judas Iscariot. 
What is the moment where the text becomes alive and can change Conway's heart? Is that a fair question? It's a question I want you to wrestle with. What's the moment? What, is the, what would precipitate this text moving from just a mere narrative to, to a place of spiritual change in our lives? I'll tell you what it is for me. It's just a simple question. Who am I in the text? Who am I? Am I Mary? Am I Lazarus? Am I Simon the leper? Am I Judas? Am I self-centered? Am I greedy? Do I love my position and my title and my point or sphere of influence? Do I, do I love those things more than I love Jesus? And when, when I come at the text in an unguarded way and, 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 and say in my heart, or oh, let me help you out a little more. Come with me to Psalm 139, if you would, for a moment. And let me... Let me help you with a little prayer that works for me. Maybe it might help. David writes this psalm, and so we're wrestling with what is, what is the transformational moment? Where do we move from a text being from a mere narrative to something that would change our life? And in other words, instead of just accumulating spiritual information our heart would be changed. David writes this psalm, Psalm 139, and he closes this psalm with a a little prayer that when I pray this prayer, it places my heart in a place where there's the possibility Of change. Take a look at it with me. Psalm 139, verse 23. David prays this prayer. He says, Search me, O God. Search me, O God. It's a very dangerous prayer. David already knew that the Lord knew everything about him. The thought that I woke up with this morning was this God has always known me. Always, before I was born, he said, oh, we're going we're gonna to whoop a good one on Edward and Marie Conway. We're going to send him Edward the two. God has always known you. David knew that. God knows every thought before, before he, and after, and in the middle, look at, Psalm 139, verse 1. Oh, Lord, you have searched me. And what does David say? You know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You 
You discern my thoughts from afar. So what is this? Search me, O God. It's the heart of a real disciple. It's, a, it, it's, it's the heart of someone that has experienced the love and grace of Jesus. It's someone that has tasted that the Lord is good. It's someone that knows what forgiveness of sins looks like. It's someone that does have self-awareness because look at the next phrase. Search me, O God, and what? Know my heart. You know, it's impossible. You know, I have been at this for a long time and, it's, and, and quite frankly, it's just, it's just impossible to know everything that's in your heart. Have you given it a try? Like on your very best day. But God knows it all. And so the heart that has been touched by grace says, oh Lord, search my heart for only you know my heart. And we, we go back, we go, go to the next verse because only the Lord can give me everlasting life and joy. And so search me, O oh Lord. Am I, let me back to John 12 for a comment. At any week in my life, I can be any one of those characters in John chapter 12. It can be Mary. It can be definitely Martha. Yes, this is, praise the Lord. Definitely be Martha. On a good day, Mary. On most of my days, Lazarus. Hanging out, <laughs> drinking coffee, you know. Hey, Jesus, doing my daily devotional. What's happening, Lord? Definitely Simon the leper, forgiven, cleansed. Who am I? Search me, O oh God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. Try me. James says, count it all joy when you fall into trials. Really? <laughs> oh, this is a very dangerous prayer. Because the circumstances of life bring the awareness of who we really are. And that is the psalmist's prayer. He ends up in verse 24. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And that is the point of transformation when we look at the narratives like out of John chapter 12. Where am I like Mary? Oh, man, that's an, that's an easy one. Oh, Lord, last year when, when, um, when the Christians were stuck in Afghanistan, Nancy and I wrote a check to this ministry and, you know, so that they could help people out of Afghanistan. Oh, I'm so much like Mary. Oh, I'm so, like, I'm so much like Martha. When the people came over the house, I sat them down. They had a great meal. They didn't have to clean up anything. And, you know, it was, like, totally awesome. Oh, 
But where am I like Judas? That is the tough pill to swallow. And some of you are sitting there, oh, tell us. Please tell us so we can pray for you. We read these narratives. um, They come and go. And the challenge that I face, you know, is not to let them come and go, but to let them speak and let them transform our hearts. And I believe if we'll do that in honesty, when we go through all the narratives that we have in the gospel, especially the gospels, what the Lord will do in his grace and his love, he'll transform our lives and our hearts. And we'll become more like Jesus. And we'll become a better father and better husband, better grandfather, or wherever you are at in your life, a better aunt or uncle or father or husband or co-worker. And that's the purpose of the scriptures. It's to really change our life. And when we come to them without being defensive, God has amazing ways to change our hearts through his grace and his love and bring about transformation in our life so that we can have and enjoy the abundant life, not only in the world to come, but today, and to have his joy in our life. And so as we go into a new year, let your hearts come to the scriptures in an unguarded way. And maybe, for the first time, ask yourself when we get to these narrative stories, who am I? in the text. Lord, help me see what you want to do in my heart, in my life, so that I can give glory to God and I can enjoy the benefit of that, which is his joy, his love, his peace, his hope in our life and in the lives of the people we love. Say amen to that. We're going to prepare our hearts to receive the Lord's table this morning. Would you prepare your heart? to receive the Lord's table.